So next up, we have um, Anthony, who's going to be talking to us about research as a game. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks so much, Steve. Um, over to you when you're ready. Thank you. And thanks so much to yeah, UX Australia and thanks to all the um, speakers and participants um, who have joined. It's been a really great conference and I'm really happy to be here. Um, well, thank you everyone for coming. I'm Anthony, Lead Experience Designer at Simplicit. And I begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands on which we gather today and pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. I believe that if we are to solve the world's biggest problems at scale, then we need to leverage the exponential power of technology enabled by imagination and ingenuity. And to that end, we should be researching for innovation. And the key to this, I think, might be to play more games. When Tim Brown of IDEO gave his famous TED Talk in 2009, he implored designers to think big as he says, to take a different view of design, to focus less on the object and more on design thinking as an approach to have a bigger impact in our work. And he pointed to these daring visionaries and innovators, people who established transatlantic travel, who transformed collaboration between medical staff in hospitals to achieve better patient outcomes. And almost 12 years on and in preparation for this talk, I found myself asking, how close have we gotten to Tim Brown's dream for design. Enter Yaron Van Erp's navigation canvas. And here we have two dimensions, impact on the x-axis and manifestation on the y. Impact refers to the desired effect of the design. Manifestation is the form it will take in the real world. Take a moment to evaluate your design practice. Based on how you currently spend your time in design research, where do you think you'd plot yourself on the matrix? I'll give you a moment to consider. I'd venture a guess that most of us are probably in that bottom left quadrant where the solution and the intended outcome are both known. And sometimes we move up into the top left where the manifestation is more open, where we can play a role in shaping what the solution should be and I think all of that is to say that as designers, I think we're on track. And as our work gains more momentum, we're going to be more on the right side of this matrix. And when you're there, if we are to design more things where the solution and the desired effect are both unknown, and that's the top right quadrant, then we're going to need a healthy dose of imagination. And the way we imagine is through play. There's a legendary toy designer who appeared on a Netflix documentary called Abstract in season one, Cass Holman. She says that a lot of what we do as designers is play, testing things out as ideas, as concepts, as objects in space. We play with things. Even when we are creating and ideating together, when we are co-designing, we are playing. And at its essence, it is, as Bernard de Coven says, a willingness to let go and become part of something new. But play is not just the gateway to imagination. It may even be so important that it is fundamental and inextricable part of being human. And if I can reference Kaus Holman again, play is as essential as food, air and sleep. Play is therapy 
It engages our brain. It gets our body and our mind back in tune with each other. So our play is powered by imagination. And as we play and imagine, we construct images of possibility, possibilities for the present, for the future. We may imagine better, more desirable outcomes, even if we don't know how to get there. And the stories we can tell each other through these images are deeply personal. They speak to our desires, our ambitions, and even our fears. How we play speaks to our personality as well. And if we can equip our research participants with the right tools and stimulus, perhaps they can imagine new possibilities that we can activate with technology. And together, we can solve real-world problems. And there are numerous ways that you can create and play design games. The important thing is that it has a purpose, a clear idea of what you're hoping to learn from the game. And to create the game itself, you'll need some experiential goal that you're striving for. What do you want play to feel like? You can't design the play itself no more than we can design any experience, whether it's an app or a website or a service experience, because the participant brings something to that. It's up to them. But we can create the conditions for play to occur and that's what I want to talk to you about today. So we'll run through a few use cases and then I'll jump into some examples so you can get a feel for what it looks like. And I mean, none of this is going to be prescriptive. I want you to start imagining your own game. And so as I talk, I'd love it if you could have a think about how you might play for research. So one use case for design games is a stimulus to help generate ideas, ideas about the past and present, ideas about the future ideas about our participants and how they see the world and how they see themselves. We can use design games to uncover new associations our participants have in certain contexts. Those are contexts that we design for them, um, situations, or with certain stimulus to provoke a response or to inspire new thinking. Or you could use design games as educational tools when participants role play unfamiliar situations, scenarios, imagine that they're a different person. When they do those things, they develop empathy. You can encourage participants to demonstrate new desirable behaviors that you're going, you need them to exhibit in the organization or to test the viability of the new ways of working. When moderators help guide play as well, it opens up opportunities for teachable moments. And I've got a good example that we can talk about. Another big use case is to research and simulate how people work together. Design games are rooted in co-design and many methods are collaborative. Participants can feel a heightened sense of connectedness through shared experience. It can help forge new bonds, strengthen existing ones, break down barriers and gather both subjective and collective interpretations. And finally, we can have participants create something practical or symbolic. You can give participants constraints, materials, you can give them an objective and free reign to create within those parameters. You can inspire players to experiment and invent as a means to overcome some challenge and all of that is to say you can do almost anything with a design game because it's a little bit unpredictable. We don't know how exactly our participants are going to play, and that's the beauty of it. So this is by no means an exhaustive list. These are simply thought starters, and you should feel free to experiment to try new things because the potential of this is limited only by our imagination as researchers. And as you'll find, you may be able to address one or even all of those things in just one game. So. 
let's get started. We'll jump into a few examples of design games I've come across. So when I was at GSK, this is a global pharmaceutical company known for Voltara and um, Panadol and other consumer, um, consumer products as well as um, pharmaceuticals, prescription medicines. And when, when I was there, I was working in the prescription medicines um, office and I played an interesting simulation about teamwork and continuous improvement in manufacturing medicines that I think about um, from time to time for various reasons. Participants were asked to imagine that their workers in a manufacturing facility, let's say we're producing Panadol here, a headache tablet. The goal was really clear and defined. You need to produce as many pills as you can in five minutes. And we had five even tables of four people each. Um, there was a cookie cutter, there's some Play-Doh, a timer and a scoreboard. And the scoreboard was just a marker and a whiteboard really. Um, each team had to decide what each worker would do to get this done in the most efficient way possible. You just had to do it. You had five minutes, you had to produce as many pills as you could with the resources that you had in front of you and with the people you had. Each pill, though, required three uniform layers, so it had to look a certain way. And each pill must be identical in size. And this is because when you're producing medicines for the real world, you can't have pills of all different dosages and of all different um, sizes floating around and all different active ingredients, it's um, potentially a huge health risk. So it's a simulation of real-world manufacturing. And the play occurred across three rounds. Each team had two opportunities to improve their process. And then at the end, we would have a look and review. Um, at, that was at the end of the total game. But at the end of each round as well, teams had five minutes to reflect on their performance and optimise their strategies. And then finally, at the end, we would all share back and worked out what did people do? What were the successful strategies that helped us improve our output? And the game had four key benefits. It made the quality control process visible and real to people, and this is a, a group of people who were largely involved in the product's marketing and distribution, but had limited practical experience with manufacturing and didn't think about it because they weren't involved in it. So it had an educational benefit. It simulated dialogue and it created opportunity for, as I said earlier, teachable moments. Players were asking, isn't this close enough? Like, I've got five minutes, I'm trying to do my best here. Who cares if it's a bit thick or, or squashed or, or a missed a layer? Well, if, you, if you're missing stuff, then you've changed the formula. And if your pill is too big, then your dosage is wrong. You know, this is medicine, it matters. Um, these mistakes could lead to adverse events. It's serious, people could get sick. So that was the moderators had a really important role there to not only educate people, but also to tell them what was acceptable, to reinforce the boundaries of the game. And the process of trying to increase our output to become more efficient reinforced the role and value of retrospectives in continuous improvement. We were, we were all required to reflect and think and think about our own performance and think about the performance of the team and the system we operated. And we all came together. And the team members formed new bonds in so doing by meeting people in their Kosh functional teams, people they may not have worked with before and building trust um, with people they have worked with before and with new people. And I just think to achieve all of that, you know, this game went for maybe an hour or so. To do that in such a limited time is pretty extraordinary. More traditional methods to 
achieve all those things would have involved observation, um, interviews with people, e-learnings. We had heaps of e-learnings. And potentially this would have taken weeks to get through it all. And it was so much more fun. And because it's fun, it's memorable. But the key point that I really want you to take away from that example was that we can create powerful games and powerful experiences, memorable experiences with very simple tools. We don't need anything elaborate and we can draw inspiration from almost anywhere. In the film, The Founder, the McDonald brothers are depicted explaining how they invented a new, more efficient kitchen layout for fast food preparation. And they call it the speedy system, right? Aptly named. With some chalk stuff, a stopwatch, public tennis court, they could experiment with multiple workable kitchen layouts in just one day. And this prototyping exercise that you can see there in the screenshot um, allowed them to experiment and it likely saved them tens of thousands of dollars and months um, fitting out suboptimal kitchens and then having to dismantle them and put a new one in. Um, and that's actually, I really encourage you to watch the film because they had already done that before they started using chalk. Design games are so versatile that you don't even invent, need to invent your own game. Um, unlike the previous examples, you can actually just use things that already exist and apply them in a new way. In 2012, the Block by Block Foundation in partnership with UN Habitat ran co-design workshops with children across the globe to rebuild their communities digitally. And they did it using Minecraft, which is a game for children. They used that as an urban planning tool and they used it as a vehicle for children to express their own vision for their communities. It gave the children a voice in the process, something they'd never had before. And it gave them a chance to shape their urban environment using a tool that they were familiar with, a language that they're familiar with. And that touches on a really important point, which is designing for the people. Each game is different depending on your participants, so you really need to keep them in mind. It's quite a pure form of human-centered design. And the foundation also developed a toolkit made publicly available on their website for governments to run their own participatory design workshops for community engagement. So it's actually a really good example of democratized research, as Robin Beers was saying. But if you want to push the boundaries a little, because we did I framed this up talking about innovation, then you could design to invent new materials and technologies. And this is an image, a screenshot I took, of contestants engaged in a competitive baking game show uh, called Baking Impossible. It's on Netflix. It's quite funny. In this episode, contestants were tasked with building an edible robot that could traverse an obstacle course in a set amount of time. And it's different challenge to challenge. Almost everything should be edible except for the electronics. And they make like these little snide remarks if um, one thing in your entire um, sculpture robot is not edible. So they can be quite harsh on that and assume it forms part of the grading. Participants are also assessed on the robustness of the engineering and the quality of the design and how it looks and the taste of the cake. And as long as these participants adhere to the rules of the game, they can imagine and play and create almost anything they like from whatever they find in the kitchen. Operating within the constraints, participants frequently invent new polymers and compounds. And this, what you're seeing on your screen right now, is they called it edible plywood. 
Um, but one of the judges described it as an almost concrete-like substance, such was its strength. And here you can actually see they're drilling through it. Straight after this, they picked it up and peered straight through the hole and the thing was you know, rock solid. You could knock on it. It was very, very strong. Another team invented edible epoxy glue, um, which was a mix of melted gummy bears with chocolate in order to create a resilient, light, and, and sometimes in one episode it was even buoyant <laughs> to meet the demands of the challenge. So, I mean, this begs a question. What possible uses could these things that were invented in a game have in the future? Could these compounds replace plastic and cardboard? Could they be used to create affordable, biodegradable and durable toys for young children? And as we know, children outgrow toys very quickly. So that could have a good environmental impact. What about replacing cardboard in cereal boxes? If it's so strong, could we make it thinner? Could edible plywood reduce demand for wood and save our forest and consumers are getting better value for their money? They can eat the box at the end of it and reduce waste. And therein, I think, lies the power of design games, a feedback loop between the game world and the real world. And this is called the game transfer effect. We design the stimulus for our players to have an experience as we observe and they play. Together, we both learn something from the experience that changes our perspective on how we see the real world. And this novel experience can shift our perspective and open us up to new possibilities. So you're probably wondering, I hope you're wondering, how do you build your own design game now? I've suggested a five-step process that we can use to get started. And there are numerous ways that you can create and play design games. And like I said earlier, the important thing is you have a purpose, a clear idea of what you're hoping to learn from this game. And to create the game itself, uh, you'll need an experiential goal that you're striving for. What should the play feel like for the participants, for the players? You, We've already mentioned you can't design the play itself. Um, we just need to be careful about designing the conditions. So with all of that in mind, let's talk through how we'll do it. We first define the goal. Um, we define the purpose of this. What are we hoping to find out? What are our research questions? Um, what are the things that we need to get out of this for us as researchers that would benefit us? And then once we have our goal, we need to conduct some early discovery on the users. We need to understand their familiarity with play, any sensitivities they might have to certain topics, their values and capabilities. And these are all really important inputs for the game. Um, remember as well that this is a game for a particular set of people at a particular moment in time. No two game experiences are the same because you're going to have different people in them and they come with their own contexts. So it's really important that we understand that knowing a little bit about them up front can be a really, really big help. When we create the game, we search widely for inspiration on our game concepts. We need to feel what's right for the purpose. And then we can design the conditions of the play, the narrative, the game rules, and any other materials that we might need to enable play. Remember that um, a bad narrative in your game may mislead people into developing the wrong solutions or interacting with the game in unattended, unintended ways. And that might be counter to our purpose, so we won't meet our research objectives. The game should match the player's skill set, 
but ideally be just beyond the player's current range of capability. If it's too easy or not stimulating enough, it'll be boring and you might not get what you need from it because you're losing engagement. And remember, it's a hyper-localized game design. Now, it is game design, but it's very, very localized to solve a very specific purpose. So we don't need anything big or high fidelity. We are just trying to use play to inspire imagination. And as Will Wright, a game designer of The Sims, says, we're often creating some toy representation of the real world. Everything that we bring into creating the game uh, concepts that we already know and we're familiar with. So we're bringing those things in. Everything is sort of some toy representation of the real world. So it can be low cost and it can be expendable. Um, when you're playing the game, be prepared to use relatable analogies and examples to help guide people in, if the design game concept is a little bit abstract. People need to understand the game in order to play it. And safety is really important. People, this is at utmost importance, really. People need to feel that they're not risking more than they are prepared to when they play. And when I mentioned sensitivities earlier, I mean to say that we should be adaptive. We need to be uh, conscious. We need to pay attention to if anyone is uncomfortable or not wanting to be there. Play must be voluntarily. And consent here is very, very important, both for the players and also for the integrity of our research. And finally, we check in after it's done. What did we learn and what could we do to improve next time? And did they have fun? And so I'll leave you with this final thought offered by Ian Bogost. If we fail to facilitate play because we don't take things seriously, it takes devotion and enthusiasm. And to inspire devotion, play often. As we become more comfortable with play, we may feel inclined or even compelled to reach further, to play bigger, to dream bigger, and to try our hand at ever more experimental modes of play. In the immortal words of an old Nike ad, never grow up, my friends. Thank you. Thanks, Anthony. Fun. <laughs> I'm glad awesome. you enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, Katrina poses the question, how do you analyse the ideas or insights from these research games? Yes, yeah, that's a great, um, great tip. I would observe and write down anything that you see that's interesting. You'll need multiple observers, particularly if you're running a bigger game, um, like the one I described at GSK, where it occurs across multiple tables. And that's because you need people going across and checking that everyone's okay and that everyone understands what we're doing. Um, but also to take notes and observations about how each group has organized a little bit differently. So make sure that you're taking really great notes on what's happening. And a lot of this is qualitative. Um, you may have a quantitative aspect as well. So make sure that you have a way of recording all of that. And I would synthesize the same way that you would um, normally, you know, happy to do it on a mirror board. Um, if you can download those notes, if you can record them electronically, or if you've done them on paper, if you're in a physical room, then you put the notes up on a wall and synthesize the insights together. Because what we're doing is a sense-making exercise. We're trying to work out, there's so many variables about how people play and um, why they might have played. And we need to dig into that a little bit better. So multiple rounds of synth where we can start to uncover all of these themes that are emerging. How did people play? Why do we think they might have played this way? And then start to um, drill down a little bit further in future research if we need to. But really, it's highly exploratory.
Yeah. Um, Michael has just um, asked a question. What are ways you communicate the power of tactile play to stakeholders who haven't played with Play-Doh or been creative in a very long time, e.g. like very senior stakeholders? Yeah, that's a really great question. I would take some time up front to make sure people are familiar with the game materials that we're introducing to them. And I mean, that's a really pertinent point because there are plenty of examples where um, designers are creating board games that are very novel and you know a little bit out there. And people may not have played board games in quite a while. And explaining the rules takes time. So um, definitely take some time up front to explain that. Let them feel the Play-Doh. Let them see what they can create with it. Try something really small up front. You know, see if you can create a snowman or something where you've got, if you're doing Play-Doh, you know, three different balls and you put them together. So people start to become familiar with using the materials to create something new. If you did that for 10 minutes or so up front, I think you'd find that the um, participants are going to warm up pretty quickly to it. Have you uh, found yourself in an environment where you had um, like a, a senior stakeholder who wasn't warmed to the idea um, turn up and be um, surprised? Uh, surprised in terms of disruptive or surprised in terms of what are we doing here? What's the purpose of this? Surprised. What are we, what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really important that before we do, so no, <laughs> the the important thing is before we go into this, that um, participants understand what they're getting themselves into. You know, that, that yeah. piece about consent is yeah. really vitally important. And we need to be really sensitive to the topics that we're bringing in as well, because it's open-ended and experimental. Um, we don't know what it might trigger for people based on their lived experience, you know, and the interactions with other individuals is something to be really mindful of. You have the same problems where some people can dominate the conversation or dominate the play. They try to take yeah. over and tell people what to do. And as moderators, we have to be really careful um, that we can, that people are feeling engaged and that their, their voice is heard in the play and that they're participating um, so if you have to, you know, pull someone aside and explain to them, that's fine. That moderation piece is, is actually really, really important. Yeah. Excellent. Anthony, thank you so much. Thank you.